Well, thank you for your welcome and the opportunity to be with you tonight and next Sunday evening, God willing. It's a pleasure to be with you and to bring God's word to you and to share some wonderful truths uh, written by the Apostle John. There are many signs that one is getting old, changing eyesight, changing hair color and quantity of hair, expanding waistlines, I've got them all, and the way we speak to others will often give the game away. When I was a school teacher many years ago, I would often refer to younger students as son, do this son. And then I realized one day I was starting to say the same thing to my colleagues, younger colleagues on the staff. I realized I was getting to be amongst the oldies then. Well, the early Christian writer, Jerome, reports that when the apostle John was too old to continue as a preacher, he used to be carried into church on a chair. And as he did, he would speak to the people in the congregation as they carried him through. And his message, even though he could no longer preach in a formal way, his message as he went amongst the Lord's people was, my dear children, or your translation, I think, had my little children. My dear children, love one another. Isn't that wonderful? That was, that was what the man had learned after years of being a Christian. My dear children, love one another. He was expressing his affection for them and seeking to share his wisdom and his experience. And this first letter is very much a doctrinal letter. It's full of great theological truths, but it's written from experience. And it's written with a warmth and a desire that the children of God should enjoy their fellowship with the Father and have an assurance of being accepted by the Father. And it's my hope to look with you over this week and next week at a couple of these statements that John makes, beginning with that expression, my dear children. It's an old man sharing the wisdom and experience of years, but a man who has walked with the Lord for so many years. And so we should listen to what he has to say to us. In this passage that we read today, the first thing we have to deal with is the problem of sin. The problem of sin. Now, that's an old-fashioned word, isn't it? And it's a misunderstood word today. Too often, people think that it's only about the worst excesses, those wrongdoings committed by the very worst of people. And John is very keen here to make it plain that we are all involved. We are all involved in this matter of sin. It's helpful, I know it's a bit twee, but it's helpful even to think about that word sin. And when you see it written down, 
What is in the middle of sin? What is there in the very centre of sin? I. I am. I am in the middle of it. We can think of it in many ways. Doing the things we shouldn't do. Not doing the things we should do. Disobeying. Spoiling. Apparently, in the sport of archery, the word sin used to be used for an arrow that missed the target. Isn't that a helpful way of thinking about sin? It's about missing the target, falling short of what it was meant to be. Now, in archery, it's not such a problem, is it? You just go and pick the arrow up and you fire it again. But in life, there are serious consequences because it's so much more serious. Sin is what separates human beings from a holy God. John talked there that God is light. In him there is no darkness. So no part of sin is acceptable in his presence. God and sin are utterly divided. Indeed, all sin is against God. We don't like to think of that, but it's the truth. It's what the Bible teaches us. When Adam and Eve first sinned, it was by disobeying God's word. And it had immediate effects in terms of breaking fellowship with God. Sure, we feel the effects of it now, thousands of years later. But there was an immediate effect that when sin was there, fellowship was broken between humanity and God. If you know of King David and the awful things he did, committing adultery with Bathsheba, arranging for her husband, Uriah the Hittite, to be murdered. When it came to the crunch, David admitted that however badly he had treated other people, his sin was against the Lord. 2 Samuel 12 and 13, Nathan has gone to confront David and David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, the Lord has taken your sin away. You're not going to die. Solomon, David's son, pleading for the people of Israel, says to God in 1 Kings 8 and 46, when they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin, and you become angry with them, and give them over to the enemy who takes them captive to his own land, far away or near. There is no one who does not sin. And of course, we read here in 1 John 1 and verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. And his word has no place in our lives. This matter of sin is very serious. And you might be surprised. 
by what John says at the beginning of chapter 2. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. The instruction is, do not sin. What's he saying to us? You see, why is the world as it is? Why is there sickness? Why is there disappointment? Why is there sorrow? Why is there tragedy? Why are our lives often so much less than we want them to be? Why are we let down by people? Why do we let people down? And the answer is very simple. Sin. Sin separates us from God. Sin spoils our relationship with others. Sin spoils the world that we live in. It's not a minor matter. It is of primary significance. And disobedience, because it separates us from God, disqualifies us from his help and his blessing. And denying our involvement only makes it worse. In verse 8, he says, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth does not live in us. This is a problem that has to be faced up to. It's not something you can sweep away or just forget about or say, well, it doesn't really affect me. It affects every one of us here from the youngest to the oldest. Men, women, boys, girl, it affects all of us. Well, that's not a very encouraging message I've brought to you so far, is it? So let's move on and see, secondly, the cure for sin. Because in that same verse at the beginning of chapter 2, where he says, my dear children, I write this to you, so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, get hold of this. We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. This is real if anybody does sin. He's not saying that we can be perfectionists, so we should pretend to be perfectionists. There's no scriptural support for perfectionism. If you know people who are perfectionists, aren't they pains? <laughs> My nephew worked as a joiner for many years and I got him to come and fit some ward fitted wardrobes in a bedroom. And we spent all day on it. And we got to the end of the day and he stood back and he said, that's not straight. And do you know what he did? He dismantled the whole lot. <laughs> And we had to come back the next day and do it again. What a pain. We're not encouraging that sort of perfectionism. But what we're saying is there is a problem, John says, that has to be faced up to and dealt with. And we'll come to it. But before we do, let's put aside two extreme positions that people sometimes take up that they think deals with this. One is the problem of legalism. By that, it's the idea that if you simply follow a particular code of conduct, stick to the rules, 
then God will be very pleased with you and he will not regard you as a sinner. But the problem is that sin is more than a few outward activities. It's not just what you do. It's inside us. It's entwined in our thinking and our way of going about things. The Pharisees went about things that way. And Jesus described them as whitewashed tombs, fine on the outside and full of decay and rot inside. It might impress others, but it will not impress God. Have you ever had that experience of somebody saying ever such nice things to your face and you know that behind your back they're slagging you off, saying unkind things? That's the problem, you see. And God sees what is inside us. 1 Samuel 16 and 6, when Samuel was looking for the new king for the people of Israel, He said, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So it's not enough just to appear good on the outside, to be apparently doing the right things. And inside, you can still be full of greed and jealousy and unkind thoughts and carelessness towards God and the things of God. But you can turn up at church every Sunday carrying your Bible and people can think, oh, what a godly young man, or old man in my case. Do you see where we're going with that? Legalism is not the answer. Simply sticking to a set of rules and thinking if I tick all the boxes, then God will approve of me. But then there is another strange extreme that some people go to, and that's has the name antinomianism, if you've come across it. Don't worry about the term. But basically what they say is, well, since all my sins as a believer have been forgiven in Christ, then it doesn't matter what I do. Everything's forgiven. He knows all my sins and he's forgiven them all. And he goes on forgiving them all. So it doesn't matter what I do. I can do what I please. I might as well enjoy myself. Why hold back if it's something you want to do? Do it. How ridiculous. Imagine a man who says he loves his wife. But not only does he do nothing to please her, but deliberately goes about doing things that upset her. And he simply says, well, she's my wife, no matter what I do. So it doesn't matter. What would you think of that man? You would say, what a horrible man. What a terrible husband. What an awful example to his children. John says, don't sin. But if you do, here is the solution. Don't be complacent about it. Don't feel it's something you've got to hide away and not admit to. Admit it. But don't destroy yourself either. Don't beat yourself up. Satan will do that for you. Remember the Lord Jesus Christ. He is our advocate with the Father. What does an advocate do? 
He speaks on behalf of the person he's representing. He is our advocate with the Father. If we are his, he speaks to the Father on our behalf. Isn't that staggering? The greatest advocate of all time is on your side, Christian, speaking on your behalf. But more than just speaking in our defence, he actually puts forward the positive case because he is the righteous one. And let's come to that word that Tony mentioned, propitiation. But that's not a word you use often at school, is it? When you're talking to your mates in the playground, you don't use the word propitiation, do you? No. And in fact, a lot of translations now replace it with the expression atoning sacrifice. And that has a lot of benefits as an expression because it makes more sense to us. He is the one who was sacrificed to make atonement for our sins, to restore us to God, to cover us, cover up our sin. But propitiation is actually stronger than that because propitiation has not only the sense that your sins are forgiven, but it has the whole sense that God's righteous anger is turned away from us completely. That's what Jesus has achieved by dying on the cross in our place, taking on himself our sin and giving to us his righteousness. Not only in God's sight are we not guilty, and that would be a wonderful thing if he were just a sacrifice that made us not guilty for our sin, but the effect of what he's done is to make us loved by God. So that the father loves the sinner saved by Jesus. Just as he loves his own son, Jesus. Isn't that fantastic news? That not only is my sin forgiven. Not only can I walk away. I'm not guilty. But I, when I trust in Jesus. When he is my hope and my advocate and my propitiation. I walk away knowing that God positively loves me. It's not just that he's not angry with me anymore. He positively loves me. He loves me as he loves his son. That is what this is about. And so when you see that, you see why. This is so great. Why go on pretending you're not a sinner when you're deceiving yourself, you're making God out to be a liar. When if you confess your sin and ask Jesus to be your saviour, not only do you become forgiven, you become loved. That's fantastic. And that's what John wants his people to get hold of. It's not just some theological nicety. It's that warmth, it's that reality of knowing that you are loved by God Almighty. That's wonderful in this world. And such is the strength of Jesus' case on behalf of his people that neither jealous Satan, 
No holy God can deny him. God can't simply pretend that sin doesn't matter. That wouldn't be fair. But he has punished his son in the place of those who will trust him. Now, you young people might not believe this, but as parents, we find it very hard to punish our own children, don't we? I know that both as a father and in my days as a school teacher. Somebody did something wrong and you knew there was a consequence that had to be dealt with, but you really didn't want to do it. You didn't want to make them suffer. You didn't want to deny them that. But God the Father spared his son nothing. As parents, we like, if we can, to let our children off, don't we, to find ways of, of letting it go. I, say, so, so, I, I know you don't believe it, but I'm sure your mum and dad do. <laughs> I'm sure they do. But God the Father spared Jesus nothing. He made a public spectacle of him. He crucified him, hung him to a cross, the most shameful thing that could happen. This innocent one, because he was taking the sin of his people and paying the price. And if that doesn't move your heart to want to please this God, to want to love him, to respond to his love for you, then you don't understand the problem or you don't understand the cure. What righteousness could I ever achieve for myself that would be better than the one Jesus gives to me? How can I not want to please and obey this one who has done so much for me? And if I do, it will show. There is the problem of sin, but what a wonderful cure for sin. And John wants his dear children to delight in it, to be thrilled by it, to grab hold of it and run with it. Now, who does benefit from this work, from this cure? We need to understand this statement that he is the propitiation for our sins and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Now, just a minute. Does that mean that everybody benefits? Everybody is forgiven? Is everybody saved by his sacrifice? No. You might try to make this statement say that, but put it in the context of the whole Bible, and it's perfectly clear that it is only those who trust in Christ who trust in him as their personal propitiation, their own atoning sacrifice. They are the only ones who will be saved. Jesus said it himself, didn't he, in that well-known passage in John 3, verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe stands condemned already 
because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only son. The good news is that his work is sufficient for all. It will meet the needs of all. You can never look at someone and say, Christ's death can't save you. You can never declare anyone a hopeless case. And that's why we need to go on sharing this good news. My dad spent all his life convinced that because he'd been christened by the Bishop of Whitby and he had a certificate to prove it, he used to say to people, that's my ticket to heaven. And at the age of 82, laid, laid in a hospital bed, dying, he said to me, tell John Harris I want to see him. John Harris was the church pastor. So I said to John, I can't imagine why he wants you, but will you go and see my dad in hospital? And he went in, and my dad at 82 looked at John, and he said, John, I want to tell you, all these years I've been wrong, and I've asked the Lord to forgive me and put things right for me. And I had the most wonderful last six weeks with my dad before he died because I knew he was going to glory. I had spent year after year praying for him. I'd virtually got to the point where I didn't believe he could be saved. Never believe anybody is beyond the power of this gospel. That's the good news. We have a cure that works. A cure that is available for all. Imagine you could find a treatment that would cure every possible cancer. And that would be wonderful. Can you imagine having that? But even if you had it, it would still remain the case that unless a person took that cure, it wouldn't do them any good at all. It would only be those who received that treatment that you could offer who would be cured. But wouldn't it be wonderful to find someone despairing, dying, giving up hope, and be able to say to them, I've got a cure here. Take this and you'll live. Wouldn't that be the most fantastic feeling? Well, Christian friends, that's what we have. We have a cure for the problem of sin. And it needs people to know that it exists and that's our duty. They will then either take it or not take it. That's not in our hands. God will either save or not save. That's not in our hands. Our responsibility is to share that good news. And you know what? One of the best ways you will share it is by showing in your own life that it's real. If it means something to you, you're not talking about something theoretical. You're saying, this worked for me. I know this is true because Jesus has saved me and he can save you. And that's the good news we're here to share. So if we've benefited from this, we need to enjoy it. We need to be thankful Yes, we still need to confess our sins regularly and often, 
Because as often as we forgive our sins, as we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins. But then we need to show it. We need to show it as churches and as individuals. We need to help one another. We need to be ready to share this news, this good news. And we need to find our encouragement, our motivation, our assurance in that lovely saviour, Jesus, the righteous one. John wanted his dear children to enjoy this salvation. Isn't that what we want too? That we might not only know it, but we might enjoy it. And that that enjoyment might overflow so that others might come to it too. Thank you, Lord, for such a saviour as this. That I can be honest about my sin. I can admit that I'm a sinner because I have an advocate and an atoning sacrifice that will put everything right and make me, make me loved by Almighty God. May you know that Saviour with that same joy. Amen.